Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Week by week, knowing what I intend to speak on on the upcoming Sunday, I usually sit here at the piano on Wednesdays and flip through the hymn book thinking about what my topic for Sunday is going to be and attempting to find appropriate hymns that we can sing based on what I know is coming up. It's been a little tougher to do the last couple of weeks because we've been talking eschatology and particularly Antichrist, and there just are no hymns about that. (laughs) And, (laughs) And so we have concentrated on singing Glory to God and glory to Christ, because that is the ultimate end of biblical eschatology. I just, I have to share this one little thing with you before we actually start in earnest. I made a mistake this morning. I did something I don't normally do. If I'm going to listen to any preaching on Sunday morning before church, I usually dial up someone that I can trust. I don't just go looking randomly at Facebook live feeds and just seeing what I can see. But I did this morning. And I'm not surprised at the amount of sub-biblical stuff there is out there. But perhaps the most egregious moment that I came upon this morning that I will share with you was a pastor who told his congregation that they should try tithing. He challenged them to try tithing for 90 days. And at the end of 90 days, if God has not blessed you, come tell us and we'll give you your money back. (laughs) A guarantee. A guarantee. You saw that fine print. That, that, you see that right in the law at Sinai, the fine print, where you're told to do the law and to tithe according to the law, and if it just doesn't work for you, God will give you your money back. And that kind of set the tone for my morning. I, I was just aghast and astounded and flabbergasted. And anyway, the things people will do to try to get money out of you. We are still talking eschatology this morning. I think we have just about said all that we're going to say about the Antichrist, the little horn. What we have seen so far is that Daniel's little horn is still future to us because it was future to Christ. And Daniel's vision ultimately traced the succession of power directly through the Grecian dynasty, through Alexander's four generals down to the king of the north and the king of the south. And if you would like to read the details of the various prophecies about the king of the north and the king of the south, I have written a book called A Brief History of the Future that you can download for free on our website, salvationbygrace.org. 
the particular chapter you would be looking for is a chapter called the Antichrist. That seems pretty obvious. Or if you'd rather listen to it, I covered the same material years ago when we were doing an eschatology series in greater depth. And then also we have taught through the book of Daniel in years past. So if you're interested in understanding the details of the king of the north and the king of the south, then you can go back and read or listen to those things. But the reason that I bring it up this morning is that as Daniel is talking about the various battles and the transitions in power between the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north is the Seleucid Empire, Seleucus Nicator, one of the four generals who served under Alexander the Great. He got the northern kingdom, and the importance of the northern kingdom is that it does include Jerusalem. It is the Middle Eastern area. And then directly south of him is the Ptolemaic Empire, or the King of the South, which is Egypt and most of North Africa. And it is through those successions of kings that ultimately Daniel gets to the little horn, the man who understands dark sentences. And then when you compare that prophecy to actual Jewish history, you land on a fellow who actually was the last king of the north, a man who was named Antiochus Epiphanes in history. Or you can pronounce it Antiochus Epiphanes. Basically what the name means is Antiochus is God or Antiochus glorified as God. So you know right away this was a very humble guy. Uh, he is actually mentioned in the intertestamental books. If you were to look at the books, the history books that were written by the Jews between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, you will find a couple of books called the Maccabees. And the Maccabees are a history of what happened in Israel and the offense to Israel that was caused by Antiochus Epiphanes. He actually did desecrate the temple of God in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And it was the ceremonial cleansing of that altar after Antiochus was gone that led to our current day celebrations of Hanukkah. I say our, like we're celebrating it. But every year around Christmas time, around this time of year, you'll start hearing about Hanukkah. If you don't know what Hanukkah is about, it is about the festival of lights and the continual burning of the flame in the temple after it had been desecrated as they were cleaning it again. And so questions arise about this Antiochus Epiphanes. Like, is he then the little horn? Because he is the final king of the north, so is he the ultimate Antichrist to come? Is he the satisfaction and fulfillment of Daniel's prophecies? And I will tell you that there are eschatological camps out there who will tell you that Antiochus Epiphanes is the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel. However, he can't be, primarily because 150 years after the time of Antiochus, Jesus walked on the planet and said, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then you'll know to flee out of Jerusalem. 
So Jesus cast it out into the future. Micah and I were talking a bit about it this week, and he said, but can that be a prefigure? Can that be a foreshadow of the ultimate Antichrist to come? And I said, yes, absolutely. He is definitely a foreshadow, but he is not the ultimate fulfillment. The definite proof outside of Jesus casting it out into the future But the ultimate proof is if you just read the details of what happens when that little horn is on the planet, the ultimate end of Jerusalem and Israel is glorification. That is the beginning of the glory of Israel, the reestablishment of their kingdom. Jesus coming back and ruling from his throne in Jerusalem. All of that happens concurrent with the little horn that Daniel predicts. And it was exactly opposite that when Antiochus was here. When Antiochus was here, he tore Jerusalem down. People were scattered out of Jerusalem. There was massive bloodshed, and the end result was not the sudden glorification of Israel. So the details just don't fit. If you read the details of Daniel and you compare it to Antiochus, He certainly did desecrate the temple. He certainly did cause a time of trouble for Jerusalem. But he cannot be the ultimate little horn. So I thought I would just put that out there for the folks on the internet who are curious and who are asking the same kind of questions that Micah and I were discussing But then also I use the phrase, and we have read the phrase several times, when you see the abomination of desolation. What is that? What is the abomination of desolation? Because Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, then you know it's time to flee, because then it's going to be a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. So what is that abomination of desolation. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And as well this morning, we are going to fill in a really important blank among our post-millennial eschatological friends. They tell us that Nero was that little horn because of the terrible things that Nero did. They also make a big to-do of the fact that if you take the name Caesar Nero And if you put that in Hebrew and then you use the Hebrew gematria in order to compare the number of that name, you come up with 666. And so they say, well, there it is. You've got Nero being the Antichrist, the little horn, because 666. But again, the complaint with that kind of thinking is in order to get it to 666, you not only have to add a extra word, you have to add the title to it. And as we're going to see this morning, it's the number of a name. So you have to add the title Caesar Nero to it, Kaiser Nero, and you have to change languages in order to accomplish it. And of course, if John was on the Isle of Patmos 92 to 96 AD, which the best historic evidence is that he was on the Isle of Patmos during Domitian's reign, which would have put him there somewhere between 90 and 96 AD, well, then Nero would have been dead and gone long ago. And so predicting, prophesying 
that Nero was the one seems kind of anticlimactic, <laughs> considering, <laughs> considering that he was here and gone. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at what is the false prophet and what is the abomination that makes desolation. And then in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the ultimate glorification of Israel, the kingdom to come, Christ on his throne, the future kingdom that is mentioned starting at the book of Genesis and then comes to its ultimate fruition in the book of Revelation. And then I think we will be able to move on to our study of Ephesians and Colossians. I know I say that every week, but the further we go into this, the more there is to say. So thank you for your patience as we continue digging through these details. This morning, we're going to concentrate on New Testament texts about the Antichrist. We have looked at several of the Old Testament texts. So let's start again by reading 2 Thessalonians 2, because it is so vitally important to remember that not only did Jesus cast the little horn out into the future, but so did Paul. And now that we're more familiar with Daniel's prophetic language, it's going to be easier for us to understand what Paul was saying, what Paul was talking about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting right at verse 3, says, and you should be familiar with this by now because we've also talked about it within the context of the bridegroom coming back for his bride. We've also talked about it as evidence of a pre-tribulational catching away of the church. But then there is this language of the Antichrist to come. Let no one in any way deceive you. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless an apostasy or a catching away comes first, a departure. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who's got a King James on them? Anybody? What does yours say for son of destruction? Is it son of perdition? Yes. Yes, the son of perdition, which means that he was a son of sinfulness from the beginning. This is his purpose for existing. That man of lawlessness, that man who is against everything that is righteous and holy, he's going to be revealed, the son of perdition, and he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Hang on to that because he is going to create a statue of himself and set it up in the temple, and I am going to argue that that is the abomination of desolation. That is the abomination that makes the purity, the holiness of the temple of God desolate once this other idol goes up. And the idol is of that particular man, the man of lawlessness. And that's important to know because that also is going to introduce us to one of the chief things that the false prophet does in order to cause everybody to worship that idol. So this is actually a transition from the worship of God in his temple in Jerusalem to the mandatory worship of an idol of a man 
which it just doesn't get any worse than that. If you look at the whole of the Old Testament, God's primary anger at Israel was over the fact that they worshipped other gods. He's the only God. That's why he gave himself the name I Am. I'm the only God that exists. All other gods are not. They're stone, they're wood, they're metal. They can't hear, they can't think, they can't even walk. You have to pick them up and carry them around. Meanwhile, I'm the one who created heaven and earth. I'm the one that gives you wisdom and knowledge. I'm the one who gives you understanding of myself and the promise of all eternity. I am the only God who deserves worship, praise, and honor. And you're worshiping idols made with the hands of men. And so the ultimate demonstration to himself that he is a God above all other gods this man of lawlessness is going to create an idol of himself and set it up in the temple in Jerusalem. Can you see now why that would be such an offense to God? Why we would use words like anti-Christ? He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. And then Paul says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things because Paul was not afraid to talk eschatology. Paul was not afraid to tell and warn Christians what's coming so that they would understand what is coming. Notice also that one of the things Paul told them was, you're going to be taken up by God. You're going, to pre- you're going to be protected. You are not appointed to wrath. Nevertheless, he told them what was going to happen in the future on the planet when there was this man of lawlessness appearing. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now? There's something holding him back right now. Even though the mystery of lawlessness is in the world even now, which we would all agree with. Evil is in the world right now. The prince of the power of the air is still quite active. But there is something restraining that ultimate man of lawlessness, and it will restrain until he's taken out of the way. You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, Only he who now restrains will restrain until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. A few minutes ago, I said to you that one of the hallmarks of the little horn, one of the hallmarks of his reign on planet Earth is that Christ comes back during that period of time. That's the sure evidence that it can't be Antiochus, that it can't be Nero, that it can't be any other historic personage, because Christ did not come back and personally destroy them with the breath of his mouth. And yet Paul says that's what's going to happen. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will restrain until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed 
whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. So that's a very important detail. Whoever it is that you identify, whoever you stick a 666 on and say, that's it, I found the Antichrist, then you have to be able to show that Christ came back and personally did away with that particular person and brought to an end by the appearance of his coming. That one, that lawless one, is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all powers and signs and false wonders. What we're going to see when we talk about the false prophet is that the false prophet actually does do signs and wonders. He's going to do miracles of such convincing nature that Jesus himself said that if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. But you know the whole rest of the world is going to flock to anybody who's yanking out miracles. They do it today to people who claim to be doing miracles. They don't even have to actually do anything. When was the last time that Benny Hinn actually healed anybody? But people still flock to him in the hope that maybe they're going to see a miracle. What if there's somebody on the planet actually doing it? What if there's somebody calling down fire from heaven? Well, people are just going to flock to him. And you can see why Jesus would say he will deceive the very elect if that were possible. He's going to have all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for those who are dying, for those who are not written in the Lamb's book of life because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Notice it does not say, because they did not choose to be saved, they did not choose to believe. Instead, they did not receive the love of the truth. Where would they have received it from? From God himself, who has to put the Holy Spirit in you in order for you to understand the truth of God. God is still the first cause. For this reason... If you don't believe everything else I've just said, verse 11 is going to prove it to you. For this reason, God will send them a strong, deluding influence so that they will believe the lie, says the King James, so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged. I believe at that point the King James says so that they will all be damned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Okay, so based on what we just read, when this man of sin appears on the planet, who empowers him? Satan. You just read it. Satan himself. When we get to the book of Revelation, Satan is going to be referred to as the dragon. And the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to speak specifically from the dragon. So their speech is going to be coming directly from Satan. So since I just said Revelation, let's go there. Revelation 13. Revelation 13, but actually we're going to start reading back in Revelation 12 just to kind of get a little sense of context. Revelation 12.3 says, Then another sign appeared in the heavens, 
and behold a great red dragon who is that I just told you how can you not know it's Satan himself it is Satan himself what did you say Russia then another sign appeared in heaven and behold a great red dragon okay that's Satan having seven heads and ten horns okay now we've seen this often enough that you ought to be able to interpret it yourself what are the seven heads the kingdoms seven kingdoms that have ever ruled over God's people Israel and ruled over Jerusalem can you name those seven kingdoms yeah first is Egypt obviously you go all the way back to the book of Genesis and Exodus to read about that then Assyria who conquered the northern ten tribes then Jerusalem and the southern tribes went into bondage in uh, Babylon that's number three Babylon was then conquered by the Medo-Persians that's four then the Greeks and Alexander the Great that's five then Rome during the time that Jesus was on the planet Rome was the dominating power in the Middle East and then this ten-toed loose confederacy kingdom that we have not seen yet but those are the seven that the Bible actually lists I didn't just make those up according to history those are the seven that the Bible actually tells us are the kingdoms that will ever oppress God's people Israel so he has seven heads and then ten horns again this reference to ten the ten toes of miry clay and iron or the ten nation confederacy on his heads there were seven diadems he has seven heads each of those heads has a crown that again is the demonstration and the proof that what we're talking about here is kingdoms seven kingdoms skip down to verse 9 and you'll read the great dragon Satan was thrown down that serpent of old he's referred to as a serpent in the book of Revelation because he was a serpent in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the book of Revelation that serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan the word devil comes to us through the Greek word diabolos which means separator or divider in fact if you were going to go out and chop wood you would use a wedge that you would then drive into a piece of wood in order to split the wood the Greek word for that is a diabolos a divider and then Satan that name means the accuser which is why his particular job is day and night he accuses the brethren so he is a divider and an accuser that serpent of old and he deceives the whole world how much of the world? Whole, world he deceives the whole world so the whole world is in a state of blindness and deception exactly like Pauline theology says exactly like the theology that we believe in which is that there is none that doeth good no not one that Isaiah says and Paul picks it up that there's no one who ever stirred himself up to seek after God 
why because they're all in deception how did they get there because of Satan in other words it has to be the grace of God and his revelation of himself to particular people that will keep people from the deception of Satan but the whole rest of the world their natural resting state is deception and darkness and sin so the Bible is very very consistent in its anthropology the whole world lies in the deception of Satan but he was thrown down to earth and his angels we just know them as demons were thrown down with him so now we've identified the the great red dragon just so you understand who the great red dragon is and now we will start reading in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation and he stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea okay now this should sound familiar because Daniel had two visions of the kingdoms that were going to come after Nebuchadnezzar first vision was of a statue with a head of gold and then working its way down to lesser and lesser elements until it got to iron and clay and then during the reign of Belshazzar he had a vision of a series of beasts and do you remember the series of beasts? Babylon was referred to as a lion. And then Medo-Persia was a bear lifted up on one side. And then Alexander the Great was a leopard with wings. And then we leap right to a nondescript beast with ten toes and ten horns. and So we suddenly leap right forward to the nondescript kingdom to come okay so this is exactly what we're going to read here in Revelation Revelation is making a direct reference to what Daniel has already told you I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads okay we've already identified that on his horns were ten diadems okay we get that each of the ten horns is a kingdom we get that the loose confederacy of ten nations ten kings who are going to three are going to be overthrown and then the others are going to give the power to the little horn on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads there were blasphemous names and the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion direct reference to the beast that Daniel has already described now the simple interpretation of this it's going to take a little bit of interpretation but I'm going to try very hard not to do any damage to the words on the page and just understand it in its most natural understanding which would be that this beast that is coming the essence of the beast is like a leopard which means that he's going to be like Alexander the Great now what do we know about Alexander the Great from what we read last week what we read was when an angel was trying to come to Daniel to give him the revelation of what was to come the Prince of Persia withstood him so we saw that Persia was actually satanically inspired and then Gabriel said Michael came he's now keeping the Prince of Persia in a holding pattern essentially and when I leave here we're gonna go 
defeat the prince of Persia, but into that vacuum, lo, the prince of Grisha comes. Okay, so what do we know about the prince of Grisha? What do we know about Alexander the Great? Why was he able to accomplish the things that he accomplished? Because he was demonically driven. And here we read, the beast was like that leopard. So whatever the demonic influence was that drove Alexander the Great and drove the Grecian kingdom is going to drive this beast to come. And his feet were like those of a bear. Why feet? Why does he bring up feet? I think it's because that identifies the location. That's where he stands. He stands in the old Medo-Persian Empire. That puts him in Iraq, Iran, Transjordan, puts him in the areas of Turkey. It puts him right there in the Middle East. It does not put him in Rome somewhere. It does not put him in a reconstituted European empire. It puts him right there in the Middle East. But when he speaks, his mouth is like the lion. He speaks from Babylon. Babylon is notorious for its mystery religion and its advancement of every other form of religion and worship outside of the worship of God, outside of the worship of Yahweh. So if you just put those three pieces together, we know he's demonically inspired, apparently demonically inspired by whatever that demon was that drove Alexander the Great, but he's going to come up out of the area of the ancient Medo-Persian Empire, but when he speaks, he's going to speak from Babylon. Is that too wild an interpretation? No. If anyone has a better one, I'm all ears. The beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like those of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. And Satan gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Couldn't be said any more clearly now. We know that this is a demonically inspired king to come who's going to be in the Middle East and he's going to advance the religion of Babylon. I saw one of his heads as it had been slain and then his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Okay, now that has caused people to look at various different human leaders through history. I remember when Reagan got shot, people got all excited. Oh, you know, if he rises up again after that, he, he might be the Antichrist. Who is it, according to this text, who has a fatal wound in his head? I saw one of his heads as it was slain. Who is he? We're talking about a great beast who came up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. And we already agreed the seven heads are the seven kingdoms because he's wearing a crown on every one of those heads. So this is seven kingdoms of the earth. One of them has been slain, but then it will be healed. And as a consequence, the whole earth is going to follow after the beast and worship the beast. So this is a demonically inspired kingdom of the past that is not during the time of John's day. In a moment, we're going to read that. In a moment, we're going to read that it doesn't exist during John's day, but it's still going to come again because it is wounded as if to death. 
so that it doesn't exist in John's day and then is going to exist again. So get that idea of some human being out of your head. It has already been identified that we're talking about a beast who has seven heads and one of his heads was wounded. We've already identified what the heads are. So even though you may see some world leader get shot and then recover, that's still not evidence that he is the necessary antichrist because it's not a person that gets shot. You're not going to see that from the Antichrist. He's not going to get shot in the head and then get up again and be fine, and everybody's going to worship him and say, who is like the beast? Because look, he got shot, and you can't kill him. That's not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is there are seven kingdoms, and one of them is going to be wounded as if to death, and then recover. And that tells you what's coming in the future, the recovery of one of those kingdoms of the past. And we're already told which one it is, like the leopard. Got it? Have I overinterpreted anything? Okay. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain. His fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, because he gave authority to the beast. So when people are worshiping the beast, they don't realize that what they're really worshiping is Satan himself. Because Satan drives the beast, and as people worship the beast, they're actually worshiping the dragon, Satan himself, because he gave his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, apparently directly from the religion of Babylon and the mystery religions of Babylon and the gods of Babylon and the Baals of Babylon, and authority was given to him to act for 42 months. That would be three and a half years. And he opened his mouth to blaspheme against God, to blaspheme God's name, and to blaspheme God's tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Notice there that the word saints stands in contrast to every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Therefore, this reference to saints is not the church. It's Israel, just like it was in Daniel's day, just like it was when Jesus talked about the saints, when he said that the elect, that they would deceive the very elect if that were possible. All of those references are references back to Israel because, here's my evidence yet again, This is all the time of Jacob's trouble. This is all the time of Israel's trouble. It's been promised to Israel all along. The church can't be here for this. Therefore, the reference to the holy city, to the beautiful city, and to the saints of the city is all referring to Israelites. And then they stand in contrast with every other tribe and people and tongue and nation. The language is very exacting. But authority was given to the beast over 
Israel, over the saints, and over everybody. He's going to be a world ruler. And all those who dwell on the earth will worship him. How many will worship him? All, all those who are on the earth will worship. Can we be on the earth at that moment? No. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Notice the distinction that John writes here. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. So there are people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life and they are no longer on the earth because everybody who's on the earth is identified as people whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life since before the foundation of the world. If your name has been written, you're part of the church. You're not here during this time of wrath and tribulation. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, then with the sword he will be killed. And here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Notice that the first beast came up out of the sands of the seashore which is language that Daniel used to identify all the people of earth. But now there's this other beast coming up out of the earth, and he has two horns like a lamb. So who does he look like? Jesus. He looks like Christ. He looks like Jesus. He looks like he's gentle. He looks like he's not going to do any harm. He's not going to do any damage. He's got two horns like a lamb. And he spoke as a dragon. Okay, so how are you going to identify the truth or the lie? By what he says. You've got to pay attention to what's being said to you. You've got to pay attention. You've got to know the word of God, and you have to pay attention to what the leaders of this world are saying to you. Are they speaking as Christ, or are they speaking as the prince of the power of the air? Are they speaking as the dragon himself? I saw another beast come up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. So whenever he's in the presence of the little horn, he exercises the same authority and power as the little horn. Which means what we're really describing here is a governmental authority who's going to control all the nations and peoples of the earth, and he's going to do it governmentally, if that's in fact a word. But he's also going to have a religious component. He's also going to have a prophet. He's also going to have a religious leader. And it is that religious leader who is going to entice and command the whole world to do obeisance and worship the little horn. So there's this whole religious component to it. So don't start thinking that just because you see something in the world that is religious in its makeup, that that is somehow good. Religion has been used to do more damage through the history of planet Earth than just about anything else. 
you can deceive people you can conquer people you can drive people through religion because nothing inspires people to activity quite as effectively as the notion that someone has the power to send you to hell forever or somebody has the ability to give you blessings that no one else on the planet has those are very motivating things religion can do a great deal of damage in the wrong hands I'm gonna go on record as saying when they're in the hands of the dragon they're in the wrong hands I saw another beast coming up out of the earth he had two horns like a lamb he spoke like a dragon and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed and he performs great signs he's actually going to have the ability to do miraculous things because he is empowered by Satan himself he performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men man if you saw that if you were watching TV one day and there was a special report about a guy in the Middle East who could call down lightning on his enemies you'd be like okay we got a new player on the field <laughs> okay and he says that we should worship well clearly God's for him because God's given him this miraculous ability and he's calling down fire from heaven so if he tells us that we need to worship this political leader then we're gonna go worship this political leader because who has that kind of power and authority look at him calling down lightning from heaven that's gonna be pretty convincing he performs great signs so that he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast make an idol to the beast who had the wound of the sword and who has come to life and there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed okay so that's what this religious leader is ultimately going to do once he has proven and demonstrated his ability to do miracles he's going to cause a man-made image that is set up in the temple of God he's going to cause it to speak which is going to be even more convincing to human beings who see it all those who are left on the earth who were given that strong delusion so that they'll believe the lie so that they'll be condemned those people are going to be utterly convinced by the fire down from heaven and now an idol speaking remember what I said at the beginning of this morning that God is the only God that's why he identifies himself over and over again as the maker of heaven and earth the only God and when he mocks the gods of stone and of wood and of metal one of the things that he says continually about them is they can't speak they can't defend themselves okay so this one is going to speak this one is going to demonstrate that he is the God above all gods and you can see where that's going to be pretty darn convincing if you don't have Christ in your life if you don't have the Holy Spirit of God in your life 
and you're just another sinful human being running around your whole life being controlled by the prince of the power of the air by the activity of your flesh and the activity of Satan and then a man shows up on the planet and gets all religious on you but doesn't require you to worship Christ he's just religious people are gonna to flock to that especially because God's gonna give them a deluding spirit so that they will believe it and they are going to flock to that one but then it is also that false prophet who causes everybody to worship that image of the beast or be killed you got two options mm. worship the beast get killed okay what does the worship of the beast actually look like well that's described for us he causes all the small and the great the rich and the poor the free men and the slaves that would be everybody John's trying to cover every class of people small and great rich and poor free and bond he causes them all to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead and he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or the number of his name so basically the mark of the beast is a demonstration of worship of the beast and it is the false prophet who is going to convince people that they must worship the beast by taking that mark and that mark is the name of the beast himself or the number of his name so it's much more than just 666 it might also just be the name itself of the beast showing demonstrating if he's putting it in your right hand and in your forehead he is demonstrating ownership and he is going to make sure that you can't buy or sell or trade unless you have that mark that's going to be pretty coercive if you got money in the bank but you can't go access it so that you can go buy food and feed your children unless you take the mark you're going to line up to take the mark especially if you don't have Christ in your life if you don't have the Holy Spirit if you're under the sway of Satan absolutely you've got that deceiving spirit going on you're going to line up to take that mark you're going to sell yourself out completely over to the ownership of the beast himself here is wisdom let he who has understanding calculate the name of the beast for the number is that of a man and his number is 666 666 okay now based on that can I identify who the false prophet is no can I identify who the Antichrist is no but right here John has identified him to the future generations who will actually see him and in their ignorance rather than reading and understanding what the scripture says they're going to sell themselves out to him anyway knowing that the end result is going to be if you take the mark you end up in the lake of fire and people are going to line up to take that mark because of their ignorance of what the Bible actually says and I think John here has given them the necessary clue to hold them completely guilty because nobody can say well nobody told us John is gonna say yeah I did I told you quite exactly and you did it anyway do we understand based on all that then 
do you have a better understanding of number one the wounded head that's not a human being that's a kingdom that came and went and then also the false prophet it is the false prophet who's going to do the miracles who is then going to cause everybody to worship the beast and the way that that worship is ultimately identified is by taking the mark of the name or the number of the name of the beast in your body showing that you are owned completely by him he's given authority over every tribe every people every tongue every nation they are all given to this beast once the church is gone Daniel described the activities of this one final world ruler. John the Revelator just gives us another glimpse of the spiritual powers that are going to drive this king. In fact, Paul himself, when he was writing to the Ephesian church, spoke about that very spiritual reality, that there are spiritual forces in the world driving the world inexorably toward this ultimate end there is an ultimate end for the church for the saints of God and there is an ultimate end for the enemies of God and history is driving everybody toward one of those two destinations you're either going to be glorified in Christ or you're going to be here under the sway of the dragon Satan himself and you're going to end up in the lake of fire. And those are the only two options, which is why Paul would say in Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12, he said, put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, our battle, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers I think the King James says against principalities and against the world forces of this darkness that translation doesn't quite get the word order correct it is the very darkness of the powers of this world that's who we battle against we're not battling against flesh and blood flesh and blood can't do anything to us the worst flesh and blood can do is kill us and send us home But there are principalities, there are powers, there are fallen angel powers, there are demonic powers that are ruling this world even at this moment. This mystery of lawlessness still exists at this moment. Against the dark forces of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The NASB renders that against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now that was demonstrated to us last week when we read Daniel talking to Gabriel about the fact that Gabriel said, you know, we heard your prayer in heaven 21 days ago. I was dispatched from God 21 days ago to come and tell you this. But the prince of Persia withstood me. And then Michael came And he's doing war, doing battle with the prince of Persia so that I could get to you to bring you this revelation. Now I'm going to go back and fight with the prince of Persia and lo, the prince of Grisha comes. And I said, there is this warfare in the heavenlies that we are just blessedly ignorant of. We just walk through our little lives. We're just sort of accustomed 
to the lives that we're living. We're just accustomed to how this world is and how this world acts. We're just accustomed to the sinfulness of human beings and this planet and flesh. We've just gotten used to it. And so we think it's okay. Or we think that there's some graduated level of goodness and evil in this world. But in fact, the biblical testimony over and over again is the prince of the power of the air is holding sway over everybody. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against these principalities and these powers and this darkness of this world, the darkness of the leaders of this world. And against spiritual wickedness in high places, that's where the battle ultimately is. And I will tell you you now and I will tell anybody listening to me anybody within the sound of my voice at this moment you're not big enough for that fight and they are either going to whip up on you the same way that Jesus said to Peter Satan desires to have you so he can sift you like wheat and Jesus answer was not so buck up Peter you need to do better Get busy, get more spiritual because Satan's out to get you. No, what Jesus said was, but I have prayed for you. I interceded for you. Satan wants you. Satan knows he gets one of the 12 and he thinks it's you. And he wants to sift you like wheat. Make nothing of you. If you do not have Christ intervening for you if you do not have Jesus standing in the gap between you and the spiritual wickedness in high places you're dust you're rife for the sifting Satan is going to make mincemeat of you how many more analogies would you like you're not big enough for this fight these are spiritual powers and wickedness that have been alive a whole lot longer than you have. They are much more cunning and they are much more powerful. And they are going to destroy you if you do not have Christ. Which is why Paul would say, put on the whole armor of God. He didn't say, just jump into that battle. Go get busy. Instead, he said, make sure you're protected. Make sure you're prepared for the battle. Back to Revelation. We're talking about a kingdom. When we talk about one that is dead and then comes again, I told you that I was going to demonstrate that to you. We're talking about a kingdom, not a man. The seven heads represent seven demonic rulers. So then the resuscitation of one of those demonic rulers indicates that the demon spirits that inhabited some former kingdom is going to be raised up again. He's going to go through a demise, and then he's going to rise again and rule over an earthly kingdom. In Revelation 17, I'll just read a little bit of verse 3 just so you understand. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay, who's the one, the beast that has the seven heads and ten horns? That's the beast that's driven by the dragon, Satan himself. And now there's a woman sitting on the beast. There's a rough rider. (laughs) Start at verse 7. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a 
gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great. Now, do you remember a few minutes ago, we saw that the beast was going to speak from Babylon? Sure enough, here she is identified as Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. And an angel said to me, why do you wonder? And I said, duh, have you seen her? (laughs) Seems like such an obvious answer. I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was, is not, and is about to come up out of the abyss and go into destruction. That's the explanation of the wounded head that looks wounded to death and then comes back to life. As John is on the Isle of Patmos during the Roman Empire, this beast, this demonic creature, whoever this is, I argue that it's the same demon that drove Alexander the Great because of the direct connection to Greece, because of the beast having the image of a leopard. But the beast that you saw used to be. He was, but right now he is not. Right now would be during the time of John, during the time of the Roman Empire. But he's about to come up out of the abyss and go into perdition, go into destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. You get all that? Do you understand that better now? This is the angelic explanation of the beast to come, the Antichrist to come, who is driven by Satan himself But he was at some point in history. And he was not, as John was on the planet writing, but he's going to come again. And the world is going to worship this man who is inhabited by that wounded head who was before John's time, is not during John's time, and will come after John's time. And that's why people are going to worship him. Revelation 17.10 then says... And they are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. Okay, so seven kingdoms. These are seven kings. Okay, five have fallen. What five would those be? Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Which one is? When he says to John, one is. Rome, and then he says, and the others to come. That's so very consistent over and over again. The book of Revelation makes complete sense with itself if you just let it say what it says. Whether it's Jesus, whether it's Paul, 
whether it's John on the Isle of Patmos, they all talk about this man of sin who's going to come, who's going to be driven by Satan, who's going to have a demonic influence like the influence of one of the former kingdoms that oppressed Israel, and that the world is going to celebrate him and worship him. So now we have this enormous clue. Whoever this world ruler is and whatever kingdom he's going to dominate, it has to occur after the Roman rule. Because we were just told one is and another is to come. So it can't be the Nero. It can't be the, any of the Caesars. But he's only going to survive for a short time. Revelation 13.5 tells us how long there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority was given to him to act for 42 months. So that's three and a half years. That beast that was and is not is himself also an eighth and he is one of the seven and he goes into perdition. In other words... It's going to look just like a kingdom. It's going to look like another world kingdom. It's going to look like the seventh in succession. But then Satan himself is going to overtake him. And that's what John calls the eighth. The wounded head, that beast that was, that is not, is going to be the eighth great ruler. But he's of, notice he's part of the seventh. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not as yet received a kingdom. 92, 96 AD, we're talking about ten kings that aren't on the planet yet, who haven't yet received a kingdom. We haven't seen them anywhere in history yet, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. How long is that? I don't know. I don't know. I think he's indicating it's just a short time. So let's sum up. There's a ten-nation confederacy. There's a ten-toed kingdom. There are ten horns. There are ten crowns. There are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. As of John's writing, this alliance of kingdoms had not yet appeared on the world stage. Whatever we deem that kingdom to be and however we finally understand it, we know that it must appear after 90 A.D., and it is yet to appear in the last 1900 years. The last of the demonic rulers of the Gentile age is going to rule it, that kingdom, and it's going to end when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. All of that is absolutely certain. Have I shown you all that from Scripture so far? Yes. I haven't made up anything. Those ten kings are going to receive their authority from the beast and it's going to be a very short-lived rulership. Revelation 17, 13, and 14 says, These have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, and these will wage war against the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. They're going to wage war against the Lamb. Antiochus Epiphanes was on the planet 150 years before Christ. He never waged war with the Lamb. Nero never waged war with the lamb. The lamb has to actually return if you're going to wage war with him. That's why we read continually that during the time of these kings, Christ comes back. They are going to wage war with the lamb, and the lamb will mop up the floor with them. That's the jimmerized interpretation. The lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him, that's us, are the called and the chosen 
and the faithful. And we come back riding behind him, wearing white robes, which is the righteousness of the saints, which we were given at the marriage supper of the Lamb when our groom came to get us to take us to the place that he had prepared for us in his father's house. You see how this all fits together? That's basic premillennial, pre-tribulational eschatology. I believe that because that's what the Bible says. Next week, then, we're going to look at the kingdom, the kingdom to come, because the kingdom is predicted in the book of Genesis, and then promises are made about the kingdom, and covenants are made about the kingdom, guarantees are made about the kingdom, and the ultimate glorification both of Israel and of the church is the ultimate kingdom of God here on planet Earth. It doesn't end with Satan and his beast ruling the planet. It ends with the righteousness of God sweeping over the earth like the seas. In other words, Christ wins. God the sovereign wins. But we have to go through all this bad stuff to get there. Which is why I keep saying, cheer up. It's going to get worse. It's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets better. But then it just gets a whole lot better. Amen. Okay? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have one question. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Yes, whoever you are. Uh, so, like, what, how do you respond to people? Because you were talking about, like, everybody on the earth is going to worship. Uh, and it says, like, all people. So, like, how do you respond to people says, well, who say, well, you literally, you use the word all there literally, mm-hmm. but you don't use it literally when it says that. Like, yeah, that's real easy. Yeah, that's real easy. Uh, the word pos in the Greek, translated all, can indeed sometimes mean all, every, inclusive, all. But usually when you see it, followed by a list or categories or types, then it means all within the type, all within the group. So it has a limitation built into the language. That's basic first-year Greek. And so when somebody makes that argument to you, they're just demonstrating that they don't really understand how the word is used in the Bible. Make sense? Yes. Okay. Come thou font of every blessing. Let's sing that. That's our prayer. The font of every blessing is Jesus Christ. Come Jesus. Let's sing that.
you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We invite you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates, books, Q&As and our ever-expanding audio archive. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.